Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Good to be with you on this good Friday, or at least that's yes. when you'll you'll be listening to this. Yes, our long Lent is almost over. Um, we're in the Triduum. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to wish you a happy Easter, but I'm, I'm trying to be more intentional about, about not skipping yeah. <laughs> not skipping the parts. So I'm going si- to sit with this good Friday. Yeah, and we always say that we work with Jesuits, and this week we are bringing one on as our guest. We do. Management is advised that we trot out a, one of our Jesuits that we work with occasionally <laughs> to remind people of the charism. Um, no, but this week we're talking with Brother Joe Hoover, um, who is a wonderful human being that will come through in the interview, but he's also a very talented playwright and author, and he has a new book out called O oh Death, Where Is Thy Sting? A Meditation on Suffering. Right. So we we wanted to to bring this interview to you on Good Friday because, you know, obviously this is a day when Catholics think about the uh, passion, the death of Christ. Um, and sometimes it it's, you know, tempting to skip ahead to Easter and not really sit with, with the pain, um, at whether that's in, you know, Christ's pain or our own. So um, we wanted to talk to Joe specifically this week about that. Yeah. And I think it comes at a time when there's been a lot of suffering this year that we've talked about on the show. Um, but Joe, Joe's not here to offer any easy answers, but he, he's here to help us sit with the questions. And I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So no signs of the times or consolations and desolations this week. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with brother Joe Hoover. Joining us from our own studio in New York City is Joe Hoover. Joe is a Jesuit brother, the poetry editor of America Media, and the author of the new book, O Death, Where is Thy Sting? A Meditation on Suffering. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Joe. Hi, Ashley and Zach. How awesome to be back. It's so awesome. I'm sorry that it, we, we, we hope this will be a fun conversation, but we are going to meditate <laughs> on suffering throughout. So, you know, let that be as a, a note to the listener that this will be yeah. only so fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully the people are fun, even if what they talk about is is not. Um, That's right. Yeah. And right. I think this crew can pull that off. This crew if, can pull if, that if off pretty well. Can. Exactly. 
No, I'm so glad to be here. You guys are so great. And um, this is a, such a great show. So thanks for having me. Yeah. I, I start with just like as a, as your uh, colleague and, and Fred, like congratulations on the book. It's really, really well done. Um, it's really beautiful. And as a fellow writer, as usual, I am envious of your ability to elucidate on, on things. So yeah, thank you. Congratulations. I'm wondering if you could just start by what's the general question that, that you're trying to, if not answer, at least meditate on in the book. You know, um, it's, it's why (laughs) over and over again, it's why it's like a child. It's like, why does this happen? Yeah. Okay. There, but why does it happen? But why does that happen? But if that happens, why does that happen? But I still don't get it. Why does that happen? And so it just keeps getting deeper and deeper into this. Why is there suffering? Why does God allow this? Yes, I know the theology, but still. Yes, okay, that's a good answer, but still. Yes, you've given me Aquinas, but still. Yes, you've given me Dostoevsky, but still. Dante, but still. Um, so that's that seems to be where it, it keeps going to. Why do we suffer? What is the point? What is the reason? It's a, it's a question you hear in a lot of Christian circles in any circle, but it's it just kind of keeps going at it keeps going at that basic question yeah so yeah so the theodicy is that that question so you know why would an all good all loving all knowing god allow evil and suffering to happen um but i don't know i don't see your book as a different type of answer to that like it's i don't know were you trying to answer it or is there a difference between what theodicy tries to do and what a meditation offers well when I when I read it again or look at it again, it's like it's kind of more like a long poem um, th- that doesn't come up with kind of clean answers, but engages the question as best it can and tries to do it honestly at all of these different accounts of you know war and um, poverty and and kids packed into juvenile detention centers and nine eleven and on and on and on. And just by engaging it honestly, hopefully, well, I don't know, if you tell the truth, something breaks open, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Just Mm -hmm. naming the truth sometimes is enough. Uh, And maybe God does the rest, whatever that means. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think sometimes we, I don't know what the we is here, but we get into trouble when we're only half honest with the, the answer to that question. And I think a lot of our our typical responses to suffering will address one part or ignore a gaping, like a giant elephant in the room for another. Um, and you do sort of throughout the book, go through typical responses to, to this problem. Um, and maybe I, I thought maybe at the top, we could just like go through some of those, um, and he, sure. get your general take on w- what makes them insufficient. So, um, I, I go to you, Brother Joe, you know, why is, why is God letting this happen to me? Why did, why did God let my, my dog die? And, and you say, well, you know, answer one, God never gives you more than a handle, Zach. Don't worry. Is that a sufficient response? (laughs) I would want to punch me if I said that to me, (laughs) if I said that to you. Um, I, um, look, you know what, honestly, there's a difference between like a pastoral conversation with someone and a book like this, to be honest, as I think about it. Um, they're doing different things. Uh, this isn't a book I would give to someone necessarily who just lost their daughter in a car wreck. 
This isn't a book I would say, here, this will kind of help out. Um, at least not initially, you know, at least not in the immediate wake of some kind of tragedy. It's doing a different thing. Um, so if a phrase like God doesn't give you more than you can handle helps, it can only help if it comes out in the right way, at the right tone, at the right time. If it's glib and um, sort of, uh, you know, um, greeting cardish, it can really do some damage, I think. You know, that remi- reminds me of something that happened when I was in college where there was this horrible tragedy on campus and a senior died sort of in a freak accident. And there was a mass for the community f- for him. And I remember being very struck by this because this wasn't someone I was particularly close to, um, but still still went. And the priests up there giving the homily, basically it said something like, look, like this isn't really the time to try and dig through some of these big questions. Uh, so I, I, I'm not the one who's going to stand up here and, and do that for you. And at the time I was, I was, you know, freshman or sophomore thinking, well, what's your job then? I thought that was your job, man. Like what I, it, what are these <laughs> right. answers? But as I've gotten older, that has seemed wiser and wiser as I've gone, gone along. I like that priest already because I mean, what we want and what I want, I'll just speak for myself. What I want to know is someone's with me they're they're feeling what I feel as best they can, or they're identifying, sharing their own experience, or they're just standing there silently but still with me. Um, they're listening as I or someone talks about their grief or about their their you know their bewilderment. At, you know they're just there, and I don't know. Sometimes you know that that's all people want. I think sometimes is just to be heard. I mean, really just listen to. Um, and without the presupposition that I'm going to hold on till you finish so I can give the answer I was going to give anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really shy away from from kind of answers like, well, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. But letting someone know I'm I'm just there completely imperfectly, completely without the wisdom of God, but at least um, a believer and with them in my humanity. Um, so like, all right, let's keep knocking down, uh, trite responses. (laughs) Um, (laughs) one that we hear a lot (laughs) is, uh, everything happens for a reason. So why is that, um, insufficient theologically? It like, obviously pastorally, probably not helpful, but even, I don't know, in terms of theology. But you know what? I just, I mean, I'm going to knock down, <laughs> not your question, but in a way, it's just words that try to get at something we can't even quite use words for. Like, everything happens for a reason? Well, it kind of does, maybe. I mean, the words are terrible and said in the wrong way at the wrong time. Uh, but at some point, people might see why things happened. I mean, that's not an answer. But it's the fact of what happens. It's a story. In other words, look at the narrative. That's what's happening. Why did it happen? Did God engineer it in this kind of marionette way? That's beyond me. But it did happen. Is this a is this a modern problem? You 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 do suggest in the book at one point that you know in perhaps in past times you just kind of accepted that life sucked in that it was going to be hard and full of suffering and that we are, we are getting 
uh, uh, thinner skinned as we move through through history? You know, maybe. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm no like sociologist of religion or history of of human spirituality, but there just was a there is a sense in places you go that I've gone to. Let's say just even now that are extreme works extreme poverty and suffering and violence and especially in other parts of the of the world where there's just no difference between god and the world there's just there god is and there's no doubt and question and god is at work and i would imagine pre i don't know modern times there would be more of a sense that god just is and god is in the air god is all around us god is something that we just experience like bread and water and and rain and 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 sun um so that yeah this happened but it doesn't completely unmoor me from the root of my life you know now i can't say with any you know that that doesn't happen even in ancient times so to speak but because there was probably more of a sense that god was in our lives in a more clear or felt way or that belief was more of a given, it could be that, you know, we think things should be okay. Like, really? There's a pandemic? This can happen? Like, Mm -hmm. honestly, this, we really can, civilization to some degree shuts down because of these little cells floating through the air, these particles in the air that can really still happen. Like, it's just kind of beyond belief to some degree. Like, we've got, like, quick fixes for everything. We are owed, we are owed normalcy in a certain sense. We are owed normalcy. We, you know, we've, yeah, exactly, we've got it figured out, and we shouldn't have to put up with this stuff anymore. Well, but, yeah, so it seems like modern thought, or, mo- like, new technologies, medicine, uh, enlightenment thinking, at once, like, you know, at, makes us kind of, like, demand these answers of God and then reject God when we don't get a good answer, but it doesn't seem like the modern world is supplying any better answers and the suffering keeps happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Job talked a lot about suffering. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it just seems like as insufficient as the answers were back then, you know, modern technology hasn't got, given us any better ones. Well, but maybe the answers were more sufficient back then, or even in certain places I've been, like the reservation, where just, yes, this incredibly sad thing happened, but, you know, Tunkashala Wakantanka is like, is just, it just is. And there's something happening here. There's a mystery that we are a part of. And even if we can't fully articulate it, we're accepting it as what happens in the world rather than this thing that should never happen to us. Um, so there's no better or worse answer, but maybe people's abilities, maybe like Zach said, our, our thin skinnedness that, you know, we think we shouldn't get bruised as much by life um, and are shocked that we do. Maybe that's a difference. Again, I'm, I am wary personally of, of vast generalizations about, about this kind of stuff, but that's just my sense is that, you know, we're thrown off and expect things to be a lot different than they, than they are. Um, that's not really the point of the book is to intellectually kind of examine these things, but it, it does, you know, that is something I bring up. So I appreciate you saying that. Now, that Ashley, uh, Ashley mentioned Job. There's another particular ancient thinker we could hone in on, or not an ancient thinker, but an ancient story. Um, you talk about the sacrifice of Isaac. Um, right. And 
that it really is sort of a miracle that this doesn't send, this story doesn't send people, drive people out of church <laughs> right. every time it's told. Um, could you just quickly uh, recount the, the bare bones framework of that story? Yes. So Abraham is a guy who has been promised that he will have a descendant even in his old age and that they will uh, create descendants who as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sands on the beach. And then he has that child through his aged wife, aged man, aged wife. And then God says, Abraham, I want you to take that one son, the one son that you love. It's in the Bible that you love your only son whom you love and sacrifice him. It goes against everything that God had just promised, that you will have descendants as numerous as the stars. So Abraham just does it. He just goes up the mountain to Mount Moriah three days. He's thinking about this. I have to kill my child, but God told me to do it. I'm going to kill my child, but God told me to do it. And he does it. He raises the knife, puts the kid on on a sacrificial table, raises the knife, and is about to kill the boy. And then an angel uh, intervenes. So that's the fundamental of the story. Yeah. And you, <laughs> in all your uh, humility, include a uh, an excerpt from a grad school paper you wrote about <laughs> this, which rightly gets destroyed by your by your teacher. Exactly, TA. exactly. <laughs> and which you try to, you know, ex- you know, excuse this story away by saying, you know, it's just a version of an ancient myth that a lot of cultures have. And it's just basically the Bible's way of making sure we don't do child sacrifice anymore. Right, right. Um, so obviously, uh, you no longer find that to be a satisfactory explanation. So, what what did your meditating on Isaac bring you to? <laughs> well, the, again, I mean, this is where in the book, it it doesn't bring me anywhere help, helpful in some ways. It, at least, mm. it kind of ends like, really? I mean, really? God asked us to do that, even though, yes, even though in some way God saved the child and God said. You know, now that you have proven your loyalty, you will, and you know, that's what it takes to pass a loyalty test is to prove to me that you would have killed your kid. Really? That's the kind of God that we're dealing with. So that's how that chapter ends. And that story, and you know, has really messed with a lot of people's minds over the years. I mean, it's, unless it's really dealt with in a good way, I don't know. Isn't that disturbing? Is that disturbing to anyone else or just me? That that's no, the test that God yeah. gives us. And it's like sort of why I'm more we're very willing to either to do what you you did in your grad school paper, which is sort of explain it away with historical criticism or context or mythologizing or or I, I go, oh, let me open my Kierkegaard and see what he said about it. I'm, I'm ready right. to turn for someone to just spoon feed me any answer that's going to a, make me feel smart, and B, make me feel <laughs> right. holier because I understand how God works. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, De Stefano, the professor, which is a pseudonym, I made almost everyone in this book has a, is a pseudonym, but um, he he's like, you know, basically wrestle with the text. Wrestle with the text. Deal with the text as it is on the paper. Don't defang it. Deal with the text, be bothered by it, be disturbed by it, be annoyed, angered. That's what it should do. This is not Goldilocks. Although Goldilocks is scary too if she gets chased by bears. But like, <laughs> this, you know, this is like, so you're right. Don't just just uh, answer it away with theological analysis of the time and the place um, that we can, yeah, explain it all away. 
I wonder if there's a lesson there for, you know, you know, deal with the text as it is, let it disturb you. If there's a lesson there for just like our experience with suffering in general, in the sense that we're always sort of ready to, as a coping mechanism. And sometimes like these are important and coping needs to happen however it, it can, but right. we're always ready to supply suffering with meaning at every given opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And almost rob it of its chance to really destabilize us in ways that I think might lead to future growth. I I, I hear you a thousand percent and I agree. Um, again, like this easier said than done, you know, um, sitting with difficult feelings, sitting with and not running from difficult things and confronting them. I mean, that is really hard work to do. And, you know, I commend anyone who can do that and let themselves be disturbed. Um, but I do know that if I'm disturbed by some text and it just is throwing me for a loop, there's something inside me, there's a grain inside that clam or whatever that is like, you know, at work. And who knows what it, kind of pearl it may turn into, but like, if if I'm really struggling with it th- and I just brush it away, you're right. I, for me anyway, I won't get that, pearl which i could have got out of that uh out of that difficulty if i just airbrush it so mm-hmm. even having said that though I, sometimes we can't deal with it at least not too soon you know mm-hmm. i mean you know sometimes people just need to watch cartoons for a while and just not deal with anything and it's totally fine until they're in a place where they could you know deal with something more difficult but at some point if it's not dealt with you know there's a line from the i think it's called the gospel of Thomas, um, if you release that which is within you, that which is within you will save you. If you do not release that which is within you, that which is within you will destroy you. And it is utterly true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, with the story of Isaac, you present this one version of God that can trip people up. One who asks you to sacrifice your own son seems kind of cruel, but you also grapple with this other God. Um, <laughs> at one point, you describe the laissez-faire economy of God, and knowing your politics like I do, I can't think. <laughs> I cannot think of a more stinging criticism of God than to describe him as laissez-faire. laissez-faire. <laughs> Just kind of let the market go where it goes, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, yeah. you know, just let things happen, you know, exactly. Yeah. So what's worse, a God who intervenes to, <laughs> to ask you to sacrifice your son or the God that just lets natural disasters and wars and all that happen? So which, which God is there? Which God wins? No. <laughs> like Bernie, Bernie Sanders God or... Um, who's getting or, primaried. Who's yeah. getting primaried. <laughs> yeah i mean it's uh, it's so great i mean all these you know writing writing this a book like this for instance like i'm throwing out analogies imagery using baseball politics um you know real life stories some poetry make up made up stories all to get at this thing that ultimately i do think the book's not a poem, but it, again, it's like a poem. The poetry is the only thing that can really, it's the only uh, form of literature that is proper to address these kinds of questions. Because, it, you know, intellectual, didactic, logic-based, syllogistic writing, if thus, so thus, and thus and so, isn't really apt for these kinds of questions. 
it's better um, circled around like a plane around the landing strip than a sheer straight road into the, you know, into the garage or whatever. Yeah. Now, you and the book are clearly influenced by some Buddhist approaches to to this question of suffering. Um, could you help us unpack some of that or introduce some of these concepts that you found helpful to sure, um, sure. incorporate? Um, when I was at studied theology at uh, Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley, <clears throat> we had um, a professor who basically talked about this, this middle path in Mahayana Buddhism where there's a sense that in, in Buddhism, the kind of usual thought is that nothing is real, nothing exists. You know, you and Zach and, you know, Zach and Ashley and me and this microphone and the studio I'm in, and they don't exist. And what does that mean? And how do you understand that? And this is all kind of complicated, but bas- basically this philosophy says things do exist and they don't exist. They do exist and they don't exist depending how you look at them. So there's a certain element of that, like you said earlier, destabilizes you. This Madhyamaka, it's a certain school of Buddhist philosophy, Madhyamaka, that if you think something both exists and doesn't exist, if you're a Buddhist who subscribes to that idea that there's a chair over there and there's not a chair over there, that's so mind-blowing that it throws us off our center and makes us realize we don't know what we thought we knew. I thought there was a chair. No, it's not. But yes, it is. No, it's not. Depends how you look at it in this Buddhist viewpoint. So that's the same thing that Socrates does. He's always saying, you know what? You know why I'm the wisest person in Athens? Because I know that I don't know anything. So ultimately saying, I don't know. I don't have clear and perfect knowledge of the universe. So just like this Buddhist philosophy, I don't have clear and perfect knowledge that that's a chair that isn't. Socrates, I don't have clear and perfect knowledge that of, that of, of, you know, of anything, really. The wisest man is the man who knows that he knows nothing. In the same way, that's similar to a Christian understanding of God. We can build churches and say Mass and take the Eucharist and read the Scriptures and study theology and, and you know, do all the good Catholic you know, all of our due diligence in our faith, let's say. But in the end, there's always a gap, isn't there? There's always a gap where I don't have certainty because I'm not there. I don't have the beatific vision, you know? I don't have full union with the divine. So um, that kind of unknowing comes in this Buddhist philosophy. It comes in Socrates. It comes in art where, you know, we're writing poems to the thing, but we're not capturing fully the thing does that make sense or is that kind of too esoteric no no i think it makes sense how do you think that approach like when as we squarely look at suffering um is it as simple as like oh you can see the suffering from lots of different ways or or just giving yourself permission to say i don't know what this means at all right um so in a, in a way this book was all about me trying to understand things, me trying to understand this. It's just me working through these questions and, you know, getting to the point where it's okay to be comfortable not knowing and to let myself off the hook. You don't have to have answers. That's not the point. You don't have to have this all figured out. That doesn't mean I don't have belief and, and can find comfort in the scriptures and in, in, and in the church. But the intellect is not the way to get to God. It's just not going to get there. Nothing is ultimately, you know what I mean? And 
There's there's no perfect union with God on this earth. So so yeah, for me, there's a lot of ways to look at it that are that are helpful and and to let me know that it's don't worry about being the perfect Jesuit who can sort of sum up all of reality with some grand vision of how things work and unified theory of God and suffering and you know socialism and Bernie Sanders and the you know ninety you know two thousand one Yankees where they lost to the Marlins in seven and um, you know don't worry about it let go be okay be humble um, it's okay to be imperfect and to have imperfect knowledge yeah. the true miracle of the book is an admission from a Jesuit which is just that that I don't that I don't have all the answers <laughs> and I don't need a bunch of knowledge right right. <laughs> Um, yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Well, aren't I awesome? (laughs) (laughs) I'm the most humble person I know. I am an incredible (laughs) Jesuit for having said that. Yeah. You're you're just like Socrates. Right. Exactly. are the most humble because you never talk about how smart you are. Exactly. (laughs) Um, well, okay. So you talk about how, like for you, how you grapple with these questions is like through, is through poetry and and the questioning and not exactly, you know, just like telling the stories. Um, but I imagine like you didn't start grappling with it. Like when you started writing this book, um, so I'm wondering if you could take us, you know, to pre book times when you were having to do this on a personal level, um, and, and how your own personal experiences of suffering have shaped your understanding. Hmm. Great question. Well, I'll just say about the book. It's not really about me per se in the terms of I went through X, Y, and Z, and this is me trying to encounter where God is in my life. It's more looking at other people and things and events and trying to understand or think about or talk about them. So it comes from the material is like stories over 18 years of Jesuit life, plus some years before the Jesuits during 9-11, before I entered the society. But of course, my own life experience comes to play in this, but it's, it's really, it's being the guy who's always, like I said, asked that question, you know? I mean, I remember as a kid, like in Omaha, you know, working at a Catholic worker soup kitchen, okay? Feeding the homeless. It was a project for sophomore theology class at Creighton Prep. And then, you know, shopping at a more fancy place in town, as fancy as Omaha has, and um, being bewildered by that, that these two different realities exist in the same place. And why do these people get nothing and these people get everything? And doesn't that blow everyone's mind? Maybe not, but it does blow my mind. And it, those are the kind of things, for whatever reason, I gave was given that blessing or curse to constantly ask those kinds of questions. It makes sense you approach the book, right? Like, be informed by my own suffering, but I'm using like sort of the subjects or other people's thing. And so there's like a distance, um, a, a critical distance of sorts. Um, is it possible to, or how much distance is appropriate um, to have when you're t- theorizing about suffering before? And I don't think you, this happens in the book, but I think some of the like theologies that you rail against is that they are a little too ivory tower, right? They are too removed from, from right personal experiences of suffering. So how do you think about the way to strike that that balance? I, I remember reading something in college where a, a researcher said something like, 
studying death sociologically or theologically is is a is a young academics game because as you get mm. older you become too you become too touched by it and it's difficult right. to to ob- object quote unquote objectively yeah i mean i i feel like i wouldn't have the 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 answer that anyone would want to hear about this as a writer because in some ways you know you're writing a book and crafting a narrative and there has to be some distance to just put the words together for me anyway i'll just speak for myself as a to mm-hmm. put the words together in a way that makes sense and getting distance from the subject is just necessary to kind of see it more clearly i guess you know i can have these experiences and emotions and everything but i can't fully give it to the reader i can only use words that as best i can describe what what happened um but i think you know the question of how distant or close you have to be from something to be able to write about it or not being too dryly academic and sort of, well, why is this happening? Is that maybe really trying to understand someone's story and take on, you know, like, like listening to Dan Berrigan say in 2006 or so that, that the, last four years of his of his life, the Iraq war, have been the most difficult years of his life, is just heartbreaking because of all he's been through fighting, so to speak, against war and through Vietnam and on and on and on and against violence. And so to hear him say that and to feel really sad about that, even though it's not about me and it's my, not my story, there's not a distance. I mean, it's a much closer than sort of an academic distance thing. Or to, to see this woman, Mary Sunshine, that I wrote about, who writes me this letter that I went to her house on a pilgrimage. She let me inside. She lets she takes people. She takes in wandering strangers, right in New, in Taos, New Mexico, and and then she feeds people. Like she has no money. She lives in this small apartment. She feeds people you know, um, these rainbow nation kids who kind of, you know, modern day hippies who travel around the country and kind of live in the woods and so forth. She feeds people. And I leave, I write her letter back to her. Nine months later, I get a letter back on like one sheet of paper, perfectly written. And she's like, it took me five months to get your letter because on the dashboard of my truck and the truck was stolen and it was in the shop. And and all the things that had happened in her life, her boyfriend was, you know, in a mental ward and she was, they couldn't find each other. And this insane story of two people who are just not clicking with modern society. Um, and her telling me in the middle of all this, that even this, even with this, where she has no truck, no money, no, she has started a food bank by walking or hitchhiking to a a food bank outside of Taos, collecting the money, getting someone to drive it to Taos, all while she's hitchhiking back and forth, getting money from the state or something. All of this is heartbreaking in a way and moving and weird and and awesome and tragic and bewildering. So yeah, I'm distanced from it. It's not about Joe's own personal tragedies or whatever. But it's still, as a writer, you're just trying to feel what people feel. So, so if that 
so, so in that way, hopefully I am doing honor to some of those people's stories by not being too distant from them. Yeah. So this episode is coming out on Good Friday. Um, and, you know, you your last chapter, you say it starts with, I'm not going to mention Easter, but, but of course, you've already mentioned it in that sentence. Um, but you don't you don't dwell. You don't dwell on Easter. Um, and I think that's can be hard for a lot of Christians like you are you are sitting in Good Friday and good sir. Easter is in two days. So why all the doom and gloom? Uh, what do you say to someone who who's whose criticism for this book is that you're you're not talking enough about Easter? Um well I'd say read it again. Um buy another copy too. What's it, and buy it right. <laughs> buy yeah. one for your friends. Um yeah. Um I would I mean it does get into Easter. Um Look for me, it is hopeful, and I don't, I, don't, I can't, I can't, I don't know what where readers will. Let me, let me, let me tell you this story. My dad bought 190 copies and sent it to like everyone he knows. Um, and what he's been doing is sending me letters of the things that they say. They write him a thank you note. We read the letter. We read the book. It was this. It was that. And um, so I'm getting all these letters, which are like, we got the book. Thank you. We got the book. We really liked it, and so forth. One of them said, well, I got through the book, period, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, one said, well, I was looking for hope at the end. Um, other people found it really wonderful. So people are going to read, in my experience, people read. It says a lot about them, their responses to something. Yeah. Okay, so that person who says, I was hoping for more hope at the end, what are what are they missing in the book? Maybe it's something they need to ask them. <laughs> You're you're not you're gonna make them do the work. You're not gonna do that work for them. <laughs> I mean, here here's here's one thing. Here's one thing. One way to think about it, and and this is more of a writer's thing. Is that most books? Again, this is not. I guess I would say like a traditional Catholic spirituality book. It's it's not sort of um, let me explain suffering or here's a pastoral approach or this is a. Um, a step-by-step guide to finding God in suffering or something like that. It's just a different kind of book that kind of opens up the question. I think it does have redemption. I think it does. It opens up to, you know, resurrection. Um, but it's, it's a different way of looking at things. And for some people, just asking the questions that they have experienced themselves and knowing that someone else has experienced those questions and is not giving them a gloss on of an answer is really helpful. So I can't manage anyone's expectations of a book or how they should read it or whatever. If someone's troubled by it or finds it very sad, okay, experience that. Be with that, whatever that is for you. I don't need to manage it or uh, distantly assure someone that it's it's actually better than it seems or you know, look at these cracks of light in the darkness or whatever. Um, people bring themselves to the art that they, that they view and, and God bless, you know, experience something as you will. I certainly, I thought it ended on a hopeful note. Um, and I, it, it, it let me, I, I mean, as you said, sit with my questions more and, and gave me permission to not feel like I was a bad person or a bad, or a bad, uh, Christian or, Jesuitical podcast host for having some <laughs> right. of them. Um, right, right. So, so thank you. Um, 
we do have one final question for you. Sure. I, I think you know it's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? Now, let me just clarify. This could be fictional or non-fictional too, right? Correct. Okay. Scout Finch. Scout Finch. All right. Scout Finch is the daughter of Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. And her great moment in the book, and I did the play about four years ago in the summer of 2016, and I was Walter Cunningham Sr. And if you remember the book, Walter Cunningham Jr. uh, gets in a fight fight with Scout Finch. They're both kids in the playground. And so she knows Walter Jr. And her dad, his dad, Walter Cunningham Sr., is getting free... Uh, legal advice from Atticus in exchange for like, you know, farm produce. And so Scout knows Walter Sr., knows Walter Jr. So the most, the second most moving moment in the play, and I'm probably going to cry here, but is, because uh, I do every time, Walter Sr. and all these guys go to the jail to basically lynch Tom Robinson for raping you know, so accused, Mayella. So Scout and Jem are there at this jail with Atticus to, you know, be there because they know it's scary and they want to be there with their dad. This is the part where I get all emotional. So, so, so Walter is there with this mob to lynch Tom Robinson and Scout, she runs out and says, Hey, Mr. Cunningham. Hey, how's Walter Jr.? How's that uh, deal working out with my dad where you're paying him for the legal fee? You know, where you're, he's helping you out with your legal situation. And so she stops the mob by naming Walter Sr. And no longer is it a mob, it's a person trying to lynch someone. And Walter says, hey, Scout, I'll tell Walter Jr. you say hi. And the mob leaves. And so this kid stops a lynching because whatever is moving through her, and you could say she's just being a kid and she's just being a naive, but something moved through her to stop that. And um, so it's just incredibly beautiful uh, scene. So for that alone... Scout Finch. Wow. That's beautiful. And and Saint Scout Finch rolls off the tongue too. <laughs> Saint Scout Finch. <laughs> um, Joe, the book is Oh Death, Where Is Thy Sting? A Meditation on Suffering. It's out from Orbis Books. You can buy it wherever books are sold. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Third time. Third time. Third I'm time. so happy to have been invited. This is so great. You guys are doing such great work. I really appreciate it and being your colleagues here at America. Amen to that. Thanks, Joe. All right. Well, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Okay. Why go teaching fish to Oh
Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.